First Peter chapter five. We come to the last chapter of Peter's first epistle, an epistle that deals with suffering, the suffering righteous or unjust suffering. Last Sunday, we looked at chapter four, verses 12 through 19, which in a sense returned to this theme after the interlude of verses seven through 11. More on this in a, in a bit. In verses 12 through 19, Peter brings several new matters as he discusses the unjust suffering. Just to review a bit, suffering is not always easy, not always, it's never easy to endure, to carry, to put up with. People have different thresholds of pain, but everyone has a point at which pain becomes painful. There are also different kinds and different degrees of pain, and some are able to tolerate things more than others. But again, I think when we suffer something that seems pointless, the question may come up, why is this happening to me? The question is a protest against the fact that we are suffering, others are not. And it presupposes that suffering is not supposed to happen to anybody. Peter, in verses 12 through 19, calls for a different attitude. And as he has done throughout his letter, he draws from scripture, which for him would be the Old Testament. So take, for example, in verse number 14, he says, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This is taken from Isaiah 11, verse 2. It is a messianic text. There can be no doubt of that. But Peter takes this messianic text and applies it to the church, the messianic community. And where Isaiah says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, Peter writes the spirit of glory and of God rests on you, plural. We shouldn't be surprised at this, by the way, given what Peter has done in this letter, connecting the suffering servant, the Messiah, with Christian suffering. Thus, the suffering that they are experiencing, or they may experience, is not a sign of God's displeasure. It is not a sign of God's absence. Quite the reverse. It is a sign that the Spirit of God rests on them. Really quite remarkable. Those who suffer because they are God's people bear the recognition that comes from God who sustains them by the active presence of the Spirit. Just by review, just four things that I would have you consider. First of all, that suffering should not be unexpected. If you look at verse number 12, this is in chapter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. We should not be surprised. Secondly, if we participate in the sufferings of Christ, we place ourselves in the pattern of the life of Christ. Verse number 13. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Just a side note, I mentioned this last week. You'll notice in verse number 16 that Peter uses the word Christian. The word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. Only three times. Two of them are in the book of Acts. The first one is in chapter 11, that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And then in Acts chapter 26, when Paul is giving a defense in front of King Agrippa, Agrippa says to Paul, 
do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? The one thing that I pointed out last week is we are so familiar with the term and we sort of pack it with a different meaning, but originally to be called a Christian was to be slandered. This was not something that the believers called themselves. It's what disbelievers called them. Oh, you're one of those who follows this guy Christ. You must be a Christian. To take the name of Christ was in fact to invite persecution. And to be labeled with the name of Christ was to be slandered. But Peter says, we are participating. This is what Jesus went through. This is what we may go through. The third thing is that the fiery trial, the difficulty may originate with opposition, but it is not happening outside of God's purpose and God's awareness. That is to say, I may be suffering as a result of persecution by pagans who, as he said earlier, think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. So they may mean, they may have a very evil intent by persecuting you, um, but as Peter said in chapter 1, you know, that gold and silver are purified by fire, so the fiery trial is God's way of changing us. And these things don't happen outside of God's awareness. Then the fourth thing, and some of us talked about this afterwards, I think it's important. What is the nature of judgment? When we come to verses 17 and 18, um, I think because of preconceptions, we look at at a different way than what Peter intends. If you look at it, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The suffering of the righteous signals the onset of judgment in at least two ways. First of all, the purging of the faithful, and then the sifting that occurs, those who are the goats, to use the language of Matthew 25, and those who are the sheep. All will be judged. But wait a minute. Someone would say, I thought judgment happened to the bad people, and those of us who are God's people, we will not be judged. But what does it mean to judge? See, I think we think that judging is synonymous with condemning, and that's not the case. When you judge something, you evaluate, you discern, you distinguish. Now, in, you know, at the end of the process, you may in fact condemn, but that's after this evaluation has happened. And I think what Peter's speaking of, that judgment is beginning, he's not talking about condemnation. He's talking about the process of evaluation, of discerning, of distinguishing who are God's people and who are not God's people. In a real sense, God, through fiery trials, is distinguishing, is discerning those who are his people and those who are not his people. Therefore, suffering is serious business. If you have read ahead to what we're going to look at in a few minutes, you might well wonder what the connection is. Although, as I've mentioned before, chapter divisions were added later, it seems like a good place for a chapter division to be. But I I think it throws us off, and and that's unfortunate. Um, What we're going to look at today is very much tied in with what Peter is saying. Listen as I read the first four verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, 
and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock, flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So you might wonder, what is the connection? How does this fit in with the matter of unjust suffering or the suffering righteous? Well, we've seen how that chapter 3, verse 13 to 4, 6 dealt with suffering, particularly in the light of persecution. And then it was followed by what I called an interlude before Peter returned to the business of suffering. Um, Actually, that interlude is he's talked about persecution and then he says, okay, this is what the church is supposed to do. This is what you're... You're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. This is what the church is supposed to do, particularly in light of the gifts that God has given us. So Peter addresses three actions of his readers. Love one another deeply, he tells them. Show hospitality to one another. Serve one another. Having said what the church should do, he then returns to the matter of suffering, which we looked at last week. And now, he's, in our passage today, he deals with the life of the church, but specifically in the area of leadership. This passage, verse number one, is marked by two important shifts. The first one would be obvious if you had a particular English translation, and I'm not sure why, but most English translations don't have it. Verse number one actually begins with the word, therefore. And the New American Standard Bible has it, but, but others don't. Um, therefore usually shows a shift in a passage, that certain conclusions are being drawn, information has been given, therefore this is what you're supposed to do. Um, the English Standard Version, by the way, has so, which I think is helpful. It's like, okay, I've given you this information, so... This is what you're supposed to do as elders. You say, well, okay, but it's not in my translation. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to know that a shift has taken place? Well, without the therefore, you should still see it. The second shift is there, but might be less obvious. Do you see it in verse number one? Peter shifts to the first person, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. This is the second time in this letter that Peter has used the first person singular. By the way, the other one was in chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. So in both instances in which he uses the first person, he is in fact urging a course of action. I'm urging you, I'm appealing to you that this is what you should do. In our passage, the primary concern is leadership in the church. The church is made up of individuals, as we saw, individuals who have gifts that have been given by God, but there is still a need for leadership. Those who are responsible for making decisions, for providing encouragement, and keeping people on the right path. This, I think, is particularly true in times of suffering, or of stress. As we go through these verses, I want you to notice, because I find it fascinating, what Peter doesn't say in this passage. 
Sometimes that's almost more helpful than what he does say. He does not write about how many elders or how many leaders a church is to have. Peter is writing to a group of churches scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, five provinces. So we shouldn't be surprised that he addresses elders, plural. Uh, But we shouldn't read into this that, in fact, each church must have more than one elder. I happen to think that that's true, but you should not use this passage to make that case because Peter doesn't say that. He also doesn't say how elders or leaders are to be selected. In Acts, we find that the apostles appointed elders wherever they went and established churches, but there's no indication uh, to whom Peter's writing that these people, that these churches were started by apostles. So no apostle appointed these elders, so how did these elders become elders? We're not told. And Peter doesn't give us a formula, this is how someone becomes an elder in the church. Um, I think it would be ideal if the giftedness of a person would be recognized by the members of the congregation and they would say, we want you to be an elder or one of our elders. But we're not given such instruction here. Peter doesn't discuss what their duties are. Based on Paul's writings, uh, some have concluded that there are two types of elders. You have the ruling elder and the teaching elder, and then you have deacons who do works of service. Peter doesn't touch on any of this. Instead, his concern is how elders do their duties. Now, and full disclosure here, the fact that this material is included in a section of a letter that deals with persecution and suffering must be taken into account. But having said that, I think that what Peter teaches here should apply generally to church leaders at any time. I think that these instructions are in fact timeless in their relevance and their application. So that's what we're going to do, is look at them today. Elders, those whom Peter is addressing. But why elder? Well, the word in Greek means literally an older man. Okay. In fact, in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Again, today is Pentecost Sunday. He says, in the last days, he's quoting from the book of Joel, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. The word for old men is what is used here as elder. And in fact, it could be argued that in some texts, it isn't clear if the writer means an older man or means an elder in the church. Um, such as in verse number five, which we will look at the Lord willing next week, where, uh, where Peter says that the youngers, younger men are to submit to the older men. But does he mean elders in the church? Or does he mean simply those who are older? Um, we do find in the Old Testament, uh, from the time of, before the Exodus in Egypt, and then as they go through the wilderness and into the Promised Land, that the leaders of a given town or given community were elder men. They were the elderly, they were the older men of a town. This is found in so many passages um, that it wouldn't be practical to trace it out right now, but I would encourage you, if you want to look into this, to look at the short book of Ruth. It's, It's a wonderful book, four chapters, a wonderful book, a wonderful story. In chapter four, Boaz has already decided that he wants to marry Ruth. 
but he needs to go through certain legal, legal uh, proceedings. And so he says, um, Boaz, or it says, Boaz took ten of the elders of the town, which was Bethlehem, by the way, and said, sit here, and they did so. And then with these ten elders, he makes his case. And he does so in such a way that the man who is actually more closely related to Ruth says, I, I'm not, she's yours, I, I have to withdraw because I already have a wife and children. Verse number nine, then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. We see the elders making a judicial decision. We see them as legal witnesses. But much more than that, they give their blessing to this union, to this marriage. Much more personal than merely a stamp on a document or a signature. You actually have the leaders, the elders of this town saying, we accept this as a valid marriage. When we come to the New Testament, it is natural that the leadership in the church would come from the older men in the congregation, following the pattern that you see in the Old Testament. And it is these men that Peter addresses, including himself among them. I appeal as a fellow elder, he writes. Remember that this is Peter. He's one of the twelve disciples, but a first among equals. Uh, among equals. He was the apostle to the circumcised, as Paul tells us in Galatians 2. At the beginning of this letter, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And yet at this point, in a sense, he sort of goes back into the background and sees himself as an elder along with these other elders to whom he is writing. He is content to say that he is a fellow elder. He refuses special privileges. He's just another older man called to leadership on the same terms as they are. For some writers, this raises a couple of questions. Who is this man? What happened to Peter? Uh, this is not the Peter that we read about in the Gospels. Instead, we hear a man of humility. By the way, we, see, we hear the same thing in Acts chapter 20 as Paul addresses the elders from Ephesus. In both cases, that of Peter and of Paul, we hear men who did have high positions. They were leading <clears throat> individuals in the church. They were apostles. But they had learned, and therefore they, learned, they knew how to act humbly as leaders. By the way, I'm reminded of the story in Matthew chapter 8. Uh, the centurion who sends a messenger... Actually, he, he appears to Jesus and says, listen, my servant is sick. And Jesus tells him, verse number seven, I will go and heal him. But the centurion has other ideas. Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Verse eight. It is the next statement that I find so revealing. For I myself am a, a man under authority with soldiers under me. 
I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Did you catch what he said there? Um, In any language, particularly if it's not your first language, but even if it is, the thing that will trip you up every time are the prepositions. Prepositions are a bear. It always messes you up. He says, I'm a man under authority. It's like, wait a minute, you're a centurion. Because he then goes on to say, I say to this soldier, go there. I say to this, this soldier, come here. It's like, well, that sounds like you're a man of authority or a man with authority. But he's very careful. He is a man under authority. Because any person with authority ultimately is still under someone else who has authority. I think a lot of people in positions of authority have forgotten that. They forget that to have authority, you are in fact under someone else. Peter has not forgotten that. And if you look at verse number four, he talks about the chief shepherd. He is the final authority, not Peter, not the elders. And so Peter has no problem saying, I am a fellow elder with you. The second question that commentators invariably ask is, why does Peter bring this up at this point in the letter? I mentioned earlier that in times of suffering, leadership is important. Um, But Peter addresses more the need for caring and shepherding the people of God. So he writes, be shepherd of God's flock that is under your care. Again, we'll come back to this in a bit. He bases this appeal, that's the word he uses in verse number one, on two things. First of all, being a witness of Christ's sufferings, and secondly, as one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. A witness of Christ's sufferings. When you first read this, I think a natural, the natural thought is that Peter is saying, I was there when Jesus was crucified. I was there when he was beaten, when he suffered. Um, but that's probably not true. Is what we're told is that all the disciples ran away. But could it mean that he is a witness, that he had given testimony to the fact that Jesus had suffered? Possibly, but I think, and particularly when you take it with the second thing, that he will share in the glory, that's the pattern we find throughout First Peter. There is suffering, and then there's vindication. There is suffering, and then there is glory. And therefore, Peter has suffered, and will continue to suffer for the cause of Christ, but one day will be vindicated and will share in the glory. It's the pattern we see in the Old Testament that we see supremely in Jesus and that we see among God's people. First there is suffering and then there will be glory. In chapter 4, verse 13, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So this is the pattern in the life of Jesus, in the life of the church, in Peter's life, and he assumes in the life of elders and the people that they are taking care of them. So he is appealing to them, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. The picture these words paint runs deeply in the Old Testament. If you look in the Old Testament, Israel is the flock and God is their shepherd. We sang it earlier today from Psalm 23, and it is familiar, but let me read it to you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in one. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This sees God as our shepherd, and we are his sheep. Psalm 28, verse 9. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. And in verse number 4, Peter makes reference to the chief shepherd. Not only in the Old Testament is God the shepherd, but he has appointed men to be shepherds to take care of his people. And Israel's leadership is described in this in these terms, but they have been unfaithful. Therefore, there is a need for new leadership. In Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 4, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them to their past, bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them and will tend them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Shepherds in the Old Testament are the leadership. We come into the New Testament. Leaders are seen as shepherds. They are to take care of God's people. And then I would remind you of the encounter between Jesus and Peter that's recorded in John 21. I can't help but think that Peter had this in mind as he wrote. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you really love me? He answered, yes, Lord, I know, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. A man who had betrayed Jesus three times, who had, I'm not betrayed, had denied him three times, now three times affirms the fact that he loves Jesus. And as someone who is called by God, he is going to be a shepherd, and he is to take care of the people of God. The same way Peter writes to these elders that they would shepherd God's people. I said earlier that what they do is not the issue. Although he does state serving as overseers, um, the word for overseers uh, in Greek is what we get the English word bishop from, it points to supervision. But I would argue that this can involve a variety of tasks and doesn't, it doesn't have to be one way or another. There are various responsibilities, different things to do in supervising. I think that is secondary to Peter. What is most important is their attitude, how they do what they do. And Peter spells this out with a series of contrasts. There are three contrasts here. Not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Here we see that the elders are directed to act in conformity with God's own exercise of leadership. They are to follow the divine pattern as the one who is not obligated Grace does not obligate God. God freely gives what he gives. In the same way, 
an elder is to be a living demonstration of that grace. They're not elders because they have to be, but because they are willing. They are willing. Peter, I'm sorry, Paul hints at this when he says that the man who offers or desires the gift of a bishop, being an elder, he desires a good thing. If you are willing, if this is what God has put in your heart, um, do this and don't do it because you must. The second contrast is not greedy for money, but eager to serve. It is clear from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 9, his first letter to Timothy in chapter 5, that those who teach are to be provided for by the congregation. I've said this before, Paul gives, uh, in both, both passages, 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5, he quotes from the Old Testament to support his contention. And I, I really wish that he might have selected a different passage, because it's from Deuteronomy 25.4, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Um, in other words, you need to support the pastor financially because don't muzzle the ox. Um, it speaks of the practice in the Old Testament, in the ancient world, that after they would harvest grain, they would put it on a threshing floor and oxen would carry, or they would pull a wooden sled over that and it would, through the process, remove the husk from the kernel that was inside. If you're a good capitalist, the last thing you want is for the oxen to be eating product. I'll feed you later. God says no. They are workers. They are participating in the process. They are supposed to be able to eat from what you have harvested as well. Do not muzzle the oxen. Why does God give this law? Uh, is God concerned about oxen? Um, Yes, he is. I would argue that God is concerned about oxen and other animals, that they share in the benefits of the work they do. But the principle being established is more important, and the application is what Paul is getting to. And what is that principle? Those who work are to share in the benefits, are to share in the harvest. Having said all that, when we come back to our passage, Peter does not want elders to be in positions of leadership for the financial or material benefits that they may get. One writer put it this way, more than perhaps anything else, money serves as a barometer of one's deepest motivations and predispositions. Why is one an elder? Is it because one is greedy? No, it should be because one is eager to serve. The third contrast is not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And the final contrast really, I think, speaks to leadership style, if you wish. There's a play on words here that comes through in the NIV. The word in Greek is kata kyrio. Kyrios, we know, is the word for lord. It's kata. So it is, in fact, lording it over that in fact these people are saying, I am the Lord in your life. Well, Jesus is Lord, um, and he is the one who entrusts these people to the care of an elder or elders. Therefore, the elders cannot are not in a position, they should not see themselves as a position to be over them as those who are lording over them. Jesus is the chief shepherd. 
an elder is to follow his pattern. And what is that pattern? From Matthew 20, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. They are to be examples. In what way are elders to be examples to the flock? I would answer that question by asking another question. What is the theme of this letter? The righteous suffer, the suffering righteous, unjust suffering. While the elders are to be examples in all areas of life, this letter, which is written to those who are suffering, calls on elders to take care of those who are committed to their care and to be examples in the midst of suffering. This pattern has already been set down by the chief shepherd from chapter 2. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should suffer in his, or that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If we follow that pattern, what do we, what do we find? Suffering and then vindication. That's what Peter points to in verse number four. And when the chief shepherd appears, he, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. He who had a crown of thorns put on his head was made both Lord and Christ, as Peter told the crowd on the day of Pentecost. This is the pattern. Peter's concern is not so much what the elders do as much as how they do it and that they are to be an example. Earlier in chapter 4, he had spoken of the fact that we are to love one another, that we are to help one another, that we are to serve one another. Elders are to be examples of this. And in times of difficulty and suffering, they are to be examples as Jesus was, not in retaliation or vengeance, but of entrusting themselves, entrusting themselves to the one who will judge justly. This is the pattern. Dan Mobley and I have been elders in this church for 30 years now. We have tried by God's grace to be examples to you to take care of you, to watch over you, to be examples of love and of service and of helping those in need. But we are not the final authority. We will fail. We have failed. But the chief shepherd is the one to whom we look. He is the final authority. And one day he will bring us all home and he will take care of us as a shepherd takes care of his sheep. Let's pray together.
Father, what Peter says here in some ways seems so different from what we hear of leadership in our culture today. And sometimes we lose our way, we forget. We thank you that you have not left us alone without an example. But Jesus, as the chief shepherd, has shown us the pattern. And even Peter, as an apostle, in his humility, fading into the background, seeing himself as an elder along with these other elders, doing it willingly, not because they're forced to, not doing it for money, and not lording it over, but seeking to be examples. We live in a culture that is highly suspicious of authority. And we chafe against leadership, perhaps in part because the leadership we've seen has not been very good. May we, by your grace, look to the Lord Jesus, the chief shepherd, and see a pattern of how we are to live our lives. I ask in a special way that you would continue to guide Dan and myself, that we would be examples, that we would lead as we should, that we would love, that we would help those in need, and we would serve. We do pray in a special way for Dan as he prepares to go to the Philippines to set up a medical mission there to help those in need. I ask that you would protect him from all harm, that you would open doors for him. May this be a productive time for him. May we not forget to pray for him as he's away from us. I thank you that we could gather on this Pentecost Sunday, the beginning of a new week, We thank you for those who have made the liberty and freedom that we have possible. We remember them on Memorial Day. And may we be thankful. Now as we leave this place, I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.